you are visiting with us, you are our honored guests. And speaking of honored guests, I want to, uh, again, send, extend a warm welcome to Keith Lancaster and his Praise and Harmony workshop. I had the privilege of, since working in the offices here at the building, I got to hear a little bit of what was going on here, and it, and it sounded fantastic, and a great time was had by all, at least from what I could hear. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm so sorry about that. So, obviously, I'm not our regular preacher, Wes McAdams, so... Uh, I, I'm his preaching intern. Uh, for those, just a little bit about me so y'all can know who a little bit who I am. Um, I'm a, going into my senior year of, uh, as a biblical text and preaching major at Lubbock Christian University. Uh, I grew up here at this congregation. Um, I was always called the kid in the suit since I was, since I was about yay high. I was always running around in a suit, so some things never change. Um, so, uh, we always talk about worship. Um, growing up, I would hear, come on, kids, it's time to get ready for church. We're about to go worship at church, or thank you for worshiping with us. Worship this, worship that, the other. But uh, one thing that I always asked is, what is worship, and why is it so important? Why is worship so in- integral to our identity as Christians? So uh, starting with the basics of what does this word worship mean? Um, it, it comes from the old English word uh, worth-ship. Uh, I hope I said that correctly because no. Um, but to worship uh, means is to uh, give self, self, something or someone reverence or adoration. Uh, this someone or something is typically a deity of some kind. In essence, what a worshiper is doing is to acknowledge that something is greater than his or herself, and that something should receive its due credit and honor. With that kind of basic understanding uh, of what worship means, let's look at a book in the Bible that is typically misused, misunderstood, or misinterpreted, the book of Revelation. Now, Caleb, you might be asking yourself, why in the world are you going to the most complicated book in the Bible? Well, there's a funny story to that. Well, I find it funny, but we'll see if you do. Um, so my sophomore year of college, uh, I had to take a class that basically we had to take a passage of Scripture, use commentaries and other scholarly sources, break it down into its basic parts, and then reconstruct it into a 3,500 word paper that we have to turn into a professor and hope that we got a good grade. So, off to the library I went to uh, start looking into the library and seeing what commentaries are there. And uh, I was kind of naive, so I was like, okay, let's just go to math, let's go to the Gospel of Matthew. Let's see what commentaries are there. Nothing. Picked clean. Okay, Mark. Same thing. Luke, John, you see where I'm going with this. So, I was like, okay, the New Testament is basically picked clean of all the good commentaries. Let's go to the Old same thing, the only thing that wasn't un, that was left untouched by this was Leviticus. <laughs> I don't blame them, and I left it there. So I was like, okay, it's either Leviticus or Revelation. Um, yeah, let's go with Revelation. So that's what I did, did my passage, got an A in the class, a B on the paper, good time was had by all. And ever since then, I've had this habit of whenever I have to give something or a presentation or a paper, I would always go to Revelation because I knew the commentaries would be there. <laughs> so, 
thank you. That is a funny story. Okay. Uh, so I, so when Wes said, hey, Caleb, I'll be out of town. Can you do this sermon? I was like, awesome. Let me get my Revelation commentaries. So the book of Revelation as a book, as a, co- as a genre, is very unique to the New Testament, but not unheard of in the old. Um, what the book does, in short, is explain the world and in all its various nuances from heaven's point of view using metaphors and figures of speech. And then uh, during all of that, he, uh, the author, uh, God, through the author, uh, promises a new world, uh, a new age, where God uses his authority as God to remove, remove the, this, the injustice that is prevailing over the land and bring justice and peace to his people, typically the Israelites, when we're talking about the Old Testament. Uh, the most, and this kind of style is called apocalyptic literature. Now, the most well-known that you would be most familiar with that isn't Revelation is the second half of the book of Daniel. Uh, the first half is all the great stories like Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the fiery furnace, all that. But the second half is Daniel having visions of prophecies about great, terrible monsters trampling over the land with no regard to uh, anything else but themselves, or great kings of the north and the south fighting against each other with no regard to God or his people. Then uh, all of that kind of accumulates into this great new age where God easily tames and defeats these great monsters and dethrones these kings of the north and south, and a new age of peace for his people begins. Uh, for those of us who have taken, who are heirs of this as Christians, know that this new age of peace is Christ. So, with that kind of understanding, let's now do a chapter by chapter uh, drive-through of seeing what does the Revel- what does the Book of Revelation say and what is it about. Starting with chapter one, the book uh, uh, follows this pattern uh, very similarly. Chapter one, we introduces. Uh, the writer, in this case this would be John, uh, most likely John the Apostle, introduces himself to his audience. In this case, this would be the seven churches in the province of Asia Minor, uh, which is modern-day Turkey. Then chapters 2 and 3 in, does an open, uh, <clears throat> an open individual letters to these seven churches as dictated by the risen, glorified Christ with vivid detail and imagery. Then chapters 4 and 5 take place in heaven, right before the throne of God. Chapter 4, we see different uh, representations and aspects of all creation bowing down before God and giving him glory and honor for being who he is, the great I am. Then, uh, and right here, this is where a lot of the mind-boggling imagery takes place. Let's just give you an example from our scripture reading uh, we were introduced to a group of people called the 24 elders. Now, the 24 elders is agreed upon by most scholars because this makes the most sense, is that it represents the entire uh, spiritual leaders and giants forefathers of the Old Testament and all the spiritual leaders from the New Testament. 12 from the Old, like the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, so on and so forth, and then the 12 apostles of Jesus, 12 12, 24. Clear as mud. So, then chapter 5 is uh, this: the man who is sitting on the throne, God, presents a scroll that no one is able to 
No one is worthy to open it or to even look inside it, except for one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And when John looks around to see who, where is this great lion, instead, he sees a lamb looking as though it's been slain, sacrificed on mankind's behalf. And because of his death, he is worthy to open the scroll, leading to the events of chapter 6. Chapter 6 through 20 goes a mile a minute, describing in great detail great calamities that befall mankind and sinful mankind's uh, arrogant and vicious struggle to maintain their power for themselves and killing off Christians and other followers of God uh, as sort of a retaliation of sorts to them, with God easily defeating them. Then chapters 21 and 22 slow things down by a long shot, slow things down really fast, and describes what this new age that is that God has promised will look like. And what that new age will look like is a new heaven and a new earth, free from sin and death. And there is a new city, the new Jerusalem. And what is populated on this new earth inside this new city is God's people who have persevered through the persecutions and the just calamities that have befallen uh, during the during chapters 6 through 20 of Revelation. Then, and everyone there worships God and his lamb forever and ever and live with him. The entire book, as fascinating and as mind-boggling, uh, as confusing as it gets, never ceases to stop and mention that God is God's power is never broken throughout the entire events of the book. At the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, gives a something called a doxology, a standalone segment of worship that is glorifying God for who he is while the, while the author, John, is greeting his, the seven churches that he's writing to. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits or sevenfold spirit, who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the king and all the tribes on the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And this kind of style keeps going. Um, during, during the ter- terrible and events of mass destruction and mass mayhem that is going on in the book of Revelation, uh, all of these are done to, in an attempt to bring sinful mankind back to repentance with varying degrees of success. You can go to the next slide. Um, in chapter 9, we see that the rest of mankind uh, did not repent of the work of their hands. Chapter 11, uh, the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. Chapter 16, where most of this is coming from. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. But they did not repent and give glory to him. Uh, 6.11, and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Verse 21, and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. 
uh, all of this accumulates to the freedom from sin and death for those who follow God will live with him and worship him as their God. What is most interesting to me, at least, is not the end credits or post-credits scene of this is what the end will look like of the new creation when sin and death are no more. As great as that is, and it's a great hope to have, but what's interesting to me is what happens in the present tense, in this heaven's eye view of humanity. Uh, remember what I said briefly about the four different, about in chapter four, about the different representations of creation praising God? If this were anything like a film, this would be the soundbite in the first third of the film that kind of sets the tone for what this film will be and what it looks like, and how, and, and sometimes it even predicts what's going to happen in the conclusion. In this case, that is the case. That sounded weird. Anyway, uh, so this soundbite in chapter 4 goes like this. The 24 elders um, are sitting before the throne of God. And starting in verse 11, or 9 verse 11, uh, and whenever the living creatures, a different aspect of creation, give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worships him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This point, this uh, soundbite, is given more nuance when the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is brought into the scene and is also given his glory. Uh, the elders are again recorded worshiping uh, the lion, uh, God and the lamb, saying, uh, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they shall reign on the earth. These elders, which are, again, I mentioned, most likely are the cumulative uh, groups from old and new, the great spiritual leaders of both, of both testaments, are giving us the reason why God is worth our worship. God created everything, the very fabric of reality, from the from the bones in our body, to the chairs that everyone is sitting in, to the air that we breathe in and out. But not only that, his son, the lamb, was sacrificed on our behalf, to not, not as a punishment, but to save us from the wages of sin and death, to bring us back to him. And that is what the rest of the book is showing. It, the book of Revelation as a whole, given from that point of view, is showing that this is the reality. God created us, and he has saved us. This reality is clashing with the pseudo-reality that sin and death want, uh, and, our man and mankind's evil desires want. These two are clashing with God being who he is, conquering it. So if that is what worship is expressing, that, that something has worth, then that is worth worshiping. If there's... If there's someone here this morning that has not yet accepted this wonderful gift that God has given us through the shedding of his lamb, his son, then we can baptize you into his name. 
Or if there's someone here that is having, is feeling discouraged and being let, pulled down by the persecution of the world, then you can come, you can either meet in Wes's office or you can come forward as together we stand and sing.